We call them Nazis. And the reason why it's easy to say Nazis is because we don't feel complicit in that evil. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Off Kilter, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Backstory, Redacted Tonight, Frangella, The Final Word, Code Switch, and Politically Reactive. It has been noted that Donald Trump's response to the violence in Charlottesville is not new or unique to him. One of the angles is that the removal of memorials to, say, Robert E. Lee, which some will maintain was the sole motivating factor of the people flying swastikas and yelling about the Jews, is an offense against history itself. You could hear that view from Fox's Laura Ingram, who decried, quote, people who have no idea, it seems, about the history of this country, just roundly denouncing anyone who had any connection to the South, close quote. She went on to declare, quote, this is about the control of the narrative and a destruction of historical recognition, close quote. And she's not wrong except about who is, in the main, doing the controlling and the destroying. Carrie Lee Merritt is an independent historian and author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Her recent article, White Supremacy in the Age of Trump, appears on BillMoyers.com. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Carrie Lee Merritt. Thank you for having me. Well, in a conversation about white supremacy... Sometimes references to class are deflections from the irreducibility of anti-black racism. But sometimes ignoring class divisions among whites is itself a kind of deflection. What are you looking to convey in this latest article? Well, I think the most important thing, not a letting poor working class whites off the hook in any way for their racism, but just trying to understand the ways in which elites not only benefit from racism, but use racism to their advantage. Long history of this throughout America, particularly in the labor sector, bosses long keeping black and white workers apart, engendering racism, using blacks as strike breakers, things like that. But so it's it's more not letting lower classes off the hook, but bringing middle and upper class whites onto the hook for racism as well and their part in it. Right. You say white supremacy is most commonly conceptualized as a way for lower class whites to feel socially superior to people from other ethnic backgrounds. More important, though, white supremacy is a tried and tested means for upper class whites to grow their wealth and power. It's not an idea that you hear coming and going, frankly, in mainstream media. You've talked about labor, but there are other mechanisms, if you will, for for how that works. Uh, Definitely. I primarily look at the 19th century South, slavery, Civil War era, and and through Reconstruction. Uh, And so when I was doing work for Masterless Men and looking at these poor whites, who I argue... Slavery was not just 
you know, something that they had no interest in and no financial benefit. But slavery was actually actively bad socioeconomically for poor whites because basically they didn't have access to jobs. And so they were constantly unemployed, underemployed, and they really had no real will or reason to want to secede from the Union or fight for the Confederacy. And so you see this movement in the 1850s by the upper-class slavers who are trying to convince them why they need to fight for the South, why they need to defend slavery. And it's just all of this horrible racist rhetoric. They come up with this impending racial war, and they warn all the poor whites that rich whites will be able to flee the region. They have the money to leave, but the poor whites will be left there, you know, at the ravages of of all these ex-slaves who have taken over society. So they're really using media to kind of engender this rabid, violent form of racism, you know, warning that these poor whites' daughters are going to be raped by black men. and I mean, just, you see kind of the the beginnings of Jim Crow and all this really racist rhetoric. And I think that even today, you can see in, in Trump's own campaign, he wasn't saying things necessarily completely overtly, but it was a dog whistle. You know, he w- he was calling all the racists to arms. He was tacitly and increasingly more complicitly calling all these people out of their, you know, little hiding places in their basements with their computers and making them feel emboldened to come out into the streets and have protests and demonstrations like they just did in Charlottesville. Well, when you hear someone like Laura Ingram saying that people are denouncing anyone who had any connection to the South, based on what you've just said, I hear a misrepresentation of many Southerners in that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Within probably the last 10 years, there have been a lot of great works, not just about slave resistance against um, the Confederacy, but also poor whites and different uh, other different ethnic groups. Of course, all the immigrants were coming into the, the southern cities, port cities. But I mean, there's a there's a huge movement not just of unionists, but of anti-Confederate people who just didn't care, who did not want to be involved and want to be left alone. And so these poor whites and blacks really did help bring the war to a close by fighting against the Confederacy in the South. The Confederacy was designed and brought about by a very small class of extremely wealthy slaveholders who, at all costs, wanted to protect slavery, which was their primary form of wealth. I often notice how media divide and erase with just the language you'll hear about, you know, police killings that African-Americans deplore. And I think, well, but wait, lots of other people deplore them, too. You know, it, it seems like an, a similar erasure going on here when you're sort of represent all the South as being pro-Confederacy. It's not it's not just getting history a little bit wrong. It's it's almost turning it on its head, it seems to me, and to to a particular effect, a particular end. Oh, absolutely. And I think just as in the ways that blaming poor whites for racism is letting upper class whites off the hook, you know, blaming Southerners for racism is letting all other Americans off the hook. It's some of the most racist places I've ever been are up north. But it's definitely just a way to deflect what they're really doing. And the Trump presidency is peopled with Koch brothers puppets, basically. And they all have a vision of what they want America to be. And not only does it take the uh, racist ideas of people like Bannon and Miller, but it takes 
um, you know, what the upper classes are designing to do on a financial level, on a tax level, to keep their power and wealth. My other guest today, Adam Johnson, quipped on Twitter, you know, I know almost nothing about World War II because there was no statue of Hitler in my town, you know. Um, exactly. And uh, activist David Swanson, who lives in Charlottesville, pointed out that it's not as though we commemorate all sorts of things. You know, there's no memorial about Native American history or slavery or civil rights. So I just wonder, as a historian, if people are going to claim that taking down a statue means forgetting or erasing, what does never putting one up mean? That's a great question. And it's one I think that we're going to increasingly grapple with as we head through taking these statues down. I live in Decatur. We're having that conversation right now. When we take down the statue, what are we going to put up? I think that's going to be a great way forward and a great way to, to try to heal the country is to think about what kind of things haven't been remembered in this country, whether it's the great biracial coalition of laborers in the populist era or honoring the slaves themselves who created so much of our infrastructure, so much of the wealth that this, this nation was based upon. There were lots and lots of things that we could commemorate, but again, there tends to be only one thing, primarily in the South, but all throughout the rest of the U.S., that, that, that has gotten the most statues and the most remembrances besides the Revolutionary War it is definitely the Civil War. When those statues come down, I think we will have a great conversation of what to put in their places. If it's not what you want, you can change it. If it's not what you want, don't take it. If it's losing, it's luster, baby. Just call me anytime. Cut him loose, singing out with the oh, oh, oh. Joining me now is Professor Kirk Savage. He's the author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race War, and Monument in the 19th Century America, along with many other books, and an expert in Civil War monuments. Kirk, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, I think what a lot of people don't know about the history here is that most of these monuments were constructed decades after the Civil War, around the turn of the 20th century. Can you give us a sense of the timeline and, and why that happened? Right. Well, that's correct that the, the, the big boom in Confederate monument building was sort of roughly between 1890 and 1920. And then there was a, a sort of secondary boom in Confederate commemoration um, that was in reaction to the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. So in both these cases, um, there were political reasons why those monuments were erected when they were. Uh, the first boom took place, of course, during the consolidation of, of Jim Crow and racial segregation right. in the South, kind of final defeat of the ideals of Reconstruction and racial equality in the South. Um, and the second boom when took place when that Jim Crow era came under threat from the Civil Rights Movement. Um, now, I, I, I should say that there were also, you know, in, in the North, there was um, a less marked but similar lag in monument construction, simply because the veterans of that war were dying, dying off. Mm -hmm. um, but 
what really distinguished the Southern commemoration of the lost cause, the white Southern commemoration of the lost cause, was this systematic campaign to build monuments, rewrite textbooks, put Confederate flags and symbols in public schools. So, it, and and this was happening in the eighteen in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. A really kind of systematic propaganda campaign to advance the racial cause of the Confederacy. And the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville is a was was constructed in sort of in the tail end of that first wave, somewhere in the nineteen twenties. Right in the early 20s, if I remember correctly. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's interesting you know, in a way that it took them so long. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the Richmond erected its uh, monument, its huge, you know, kind of magnificent, actually, monument to Robert E. Lee in 1890 uh, and New Orleans a few years before that. But the Richmond Monument really sort of kicked off uh, the kind of um, uh, campaign to make the Confederacy respectable again. There's a shit ton of racist monuments in America. Look over your shoulder, it's a Confederate soldier. A shit ton of racist monuments in America. Another rebel statue is always looking back at you. There's nine high schools named for Robert E. Lee, the first clan head heads in Nashville, Tennessee, and there he is again. Oh, good Lord, save us, and this whole damn county's named for Jefferson Davis, cuz there's a whole lot of racist monuments in America. For every union station, there's an anti-union station. There's a ton of racist monuments in America. The fabric of this nation was weaved on a plantation. We were going to talk about something that certainly never occurred to me and probably has never occurred to most Americans. And that is how our Jim Crow laws might have influenced the Nazis and their own racial policies of the 1930s. And I, I got to tell you, that's a hard look in the mirror. And that's the explosive topic covered by our first guest. James Q. Whitman is the Ford Foundation Professor of Comparative and Foreign Law at Yale Law School. His subjects are comparative law, criminal law, and legal history. His books include Harsh Justice, The Origins of Reasonable Doubt, The Verdict of Battle, and the book we're going to be discussing today, Hitler's American Model, The United States, and the Making of Nazi Race Law. And he comes to us today from Paris, France. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professor James Q. Whitman. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome indeed, Professor Whitman. When you released this book, it caused quite a sensation in literary circles, and it was very favorably well-reviewed for the most part, because you went into primary historical sources during the Nazi period. You weren't just skimming off commentary about how the early Nazis praised segregation laws in the U.S. Could you present our listeners with the thesis of your book? Well, to begin with, it's important that listeners should understand that in the early 1930s and really in the early 20th century, the U.S. was the leading racist jurisdiction in the world. That's, of course, partly because racism runs very deep in American society, but it's also because American lawyers were then, as they are now, unusually creative, innovative figures who produced all sorts of, well, from the point of view of racists then, exciting race law, and among those who found it exciting were Nazi lawyers. I've managed to discover quite a bit of evidence of all of this, the most dramatic 
piece of evidence really comes from a, a stenographic transcript of a planning meeting for the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, which began, if you can believe it, when the Nazi Minister of Justice presented a memorandum on American law and it continued with detailed discussion of American law thereafter. And when Hitler wrote his book, Mein Kampf, he referred to the situation in the U.S., both in terms of Germans immigrating here and the mixed races. What did he say? Well, he did. Uh, there was a great deal of interest in the United States throughout the world, but especially among European right-wingers, whom Hitler was, of course, one. He actually described the United States and Mein Kampf as the one state that was making progress toward the creation of a healthy race order of the kind that he wanted to create in Germany. You're entirely right that he was interested in the immigration of Germans into the United States and a little bit more broadly in the American scene. What he found exciting about American law in particular was not Jim Crow as such. And it's important to emphasize that because there was more to American race law than Jim Crow. What excited Hitler was American immigration legislation. America had the world's leading model of race-based immigration legislation in the 1920s, and far-right-wingers, of whom Hitler was only one, expressed a lot of admiration for that throughout the early 20th century. Explain this immigration law in terms of its quotas, and how did it pass Congress? Who were the main sponsors? Oh, gee, I'm not uh, sure that I'm the best person to answer the second of your questions. You really need to talk to an American specialist in American legal history about that. The way this statutes worked, though, did involve exactly, as you say, quotas, uh, and in particular, quotas on the basis of national origin. Now, these statutes didn't expressly advertise their racist aims. They used the sort of thing that Americans often use, a kind of a legal subterfuge, the subterfuge in this case being, once again, national origin. But there was no secret about what the statutes were intended to achieve. They were intended to maintain, well, although that phrase wasn't used either, white supremacy in the United States. They favored immigrants from Northern European countries, not only, of course, England, but also Germany. And that naturally seemed appealing to Hitler. They were particularly designed to keep out Eastern Europeans, among them Eastern European Jews. In addition, there was other American legislation carefully designed to keep Asian immigration to a minimum. The world is riddled with maggots. The maggots are getting fat. They're making a tasty meal of all the bosses and bureaucrats. They're taking over the boardrooms and they're fat and full of pride. And they all came out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died. So if you meet with these historians, I'll tell you what to say. Tell them that the Nazis never really went away. They're out there burning houses down and peddling racist lies. And we'll never rest again until every Nazi dies. I think we need to explain how this event fits into the larger stream of American history. It was a remarkable distillation of so much that's wrong with American history that was paraded right before our eyes this week. So I'm willing to bet we can even find some things that are right with American history if we look hard enough. Well, <laughs> let's work our way toward that, okay? Okay. So l let's take the first pass uh, with wondering about the way that people struggle to find the right language to describe what we were seeing. Uh, it felt like as if we were making up new vocabularies along mm. the way. I, I wonder if you all could help me think about that. Joanne, looking at it from a broader perspective, what, what struck you? Well, I guess one of the things that struck me is, um, you know, there are any number of, of terms people are throwing around, KKK, 
Nazi, neo-Nazi, neo-Confederate. I mean, there's we could make a huge list. But some of them, and Nazi is one of them, that word, although in popular culture, Nazi equals bad guy, in historical memory, Nazi equals bad guy, also in popular culture and historical memory, Nazis aren't Americans. Right. And mm -hmm. that term to me masks the part of this that we have to most aggressively grapple with, which is that these mm -hmm. aren't thems. These are uses. This is, these are Americans doing what they're doing. And it's, I think it's too easy. I think it's a default position is to say, well, that's just them or that's right. just a small group or that's just. Well, I've been in conversations in which uh, people who had seen themselves as the keeper of Confederate iconography are distraught over the mixture of this oh, alien hmm. Nazi sure. symbols sure. alongside wow. the Confederate ones because there's a sense among people who identify themselves primarily as descendants of the Confederacy that they lost something uh, in this sort of mashup hmm. of iconography. Hmm. And on the other side, as we try to describe this, the phrase white supremacy is both accurate but seems so broad that it doesn't have as much of a bite as it needs to have. And the word racism, too. What words should we use to talk about what it is that we've been seeing here? Well, I'm actually quite comfortable using the term white supremacy, although I recognize that it can be kind of everywhere and nowhere and that it loses some of its analytic specificity yeah, if you apply that's really it. what I meant. But. but in a case like the protests in Charlottesville, we should feel, in my opinion, at least as a historian, very comfortable talking about white supremacy when you have people saying themselves white power, when they're saying themselves that I am for the white nation or saying I'm voting for yep. the president precisely because of what he represents. So in that sense, it's kind of like the old adage, you know, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Um, I tend to think it's quite okay to use it in, in that instance for sure. I find that very compelling. You know, one of the things that struck me in, in watching these events unfold has to do with the statues themselves. You know, I mean, there's the statue of Lee that's at the center of all this. The evening before, people were gathered around a statue of Thomas Jefferson. And um, what came to mind for me was there's a very famous print of New York City uh, towards the beginning of the revolution. And it's New Yorkers pulling down a statue of King George. Wow. It's a group of them and they have ropes and they're tugging and they're pulling. And the the symbolism of that for the American Revolution was intensely powerful. And watching all of this swirling emotion around essentially these statues, it's a reminder, I guess it's a reminder, among other things, of their iconic value and, and the power of that. You know, somebody who's thought about these statues and studied the time that they were put up around the turn of the 20th century and what the people who put them up invested in them and believed that they were going to say forever and that they were forever going to hold up Robert E. Lee as the embodiment of, of Christian gentlemanly virtue. It's remarkable to see how in less than a decade they have come under assault. Now, we know from the newspapers at the time that black people, when these statues went up, said, no. This, this is not speaking for all of us. We know what this is. We know this is a symbol of your authority, your power, that you lost the war, but you're still holding on to this local dominion. And so African-American people had 
resented uh, and resisted these statues, but they had stood there mute from the viewpoint of most people. You know, they were like the furniture of mm-hmm. Charlottesville. Those statues you know, have lived here for a long time, and there they were. Uh, but suddenly, they have come under assault. So when the Lee statue in Charlottesville was put up in 1924, commissioned in 1917, that would have been a time when black voter turnout in Virginia would have been virtually nil. Mm -hmm. It would have been a time when Virginia passed the Racial Purity Act that established an office to maintain surveillance over people's birth certificates to make sure that nobody accidentally married a, quote, Negro, right? Mm -hmm. So the spirit in which these statues were put up were one of great confidence in the superiority and complete dominance of white people. Since long before I had any amount of advertising on this show, the most consistent support that's kept the program running has come directly from listeners in the form of recurring membership payments. Ads, of course, can come and go. It can be feast or famine, but it's the memberships that create the solid base we need. And I want you to know that our donation system has undergone a metamorphosis recently. We switched from just PayPal to Patreon, which uses either PayPal or a credit card, so you can choose which one you prefer. And they also make it really easy to donate as low as a buck a month. So if you can't afford more than that, but you want to chip in something, at least they give you the opportunity to chip in. Now, memberships start at six bucks a month, and that includes a separate members podcast feed, which includes all of our regularly scheduled episodes ad-free, all of our reruns also ad-free, and our new and improved bonus content that we've been producing recently. And higher level membership donations come with brand new Trump era themed nicknames. So if you go up to $10 a month, then you are dubbed a professional protester, while the $20 a month level is a full blown social justice warrior. Now, as for bonus content, our social media and activism czar, Amanda, expressed interest in joining in on the bonus content recently. And so for the last several weeks, we've been having a wide range of interesting conversations for members only. Recent topics include an analysis of the two political parties as understood through their campaign logos, which I promise is more interesting than it sounds, and a dive into understanding the various divides within the feminist movement. And I think, I think we had some really interesting ideas uh, in that conversation. So if you'd like to support our work and get instant access to all of that, either find Best of the Left on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And a couple of people who have done just that recently are Tara Peach and Jay Aldenwald, who both signed up at the Social Justice Warrior level. So a huge thanks to them and to all of the other members and donors, large and small, who keep this show going. A toast of white supremacy Here's an aspect of this story that Angela and I both, in different ways, have had a conversation about, and and was like, how come this detail isn't there? Yes. So as we all know, we're talking about Charlottesville. We're talking about Charlottesville, and so when we when we start here at this story, that of course this is a hate rally that started on a Friday night. 
right? On a Saturday. Was it Friday? It was Friday night. Friday the night. The pictures that you're seeing yes. of the, the white boys, uh, white men and boys, yeah. um, screaming with tiki torches who all look like they're either going to park your car or go golfing with Donald Trump mm-hmm. or be a Nazi. They're all wearing that white t-shirt and the khakis. That picture is from Friday night. That's all from of Friday those, night. Yeah, that's from Friday night. This is the pre- even crazier. Right. So they got together with their tiki torches, which I can just flag it. I know, flag it. And they decided to marshal. They're there to protest taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. Right. But one aspect in this story, when you see them, the, the picture that keeps being shown from that night is them circling around the statue of Robert E. Lee. In, in near the uh, university campus. Right. But what doesn't get talked about at all, and I, I haven't seen since it the first, since it first got reported, since it first got reported, is the fact that they actually marched too with fire in hand to a black church called St. Paul's Church. Uh, Very purposefully. Yes. To, they, they marched. These was 50. They're saying 100 uh, white nationalists marched. They directly on that Friday night, last Friday night, yes. marched to this church because that is where the counter protesters were organizing right. for the following day for Saturday's march and rally. So when we're when we start this conversation, the reality is, is that inside the church, uh, some keynote speakers was were uh, Reverend Tracy Blackman and Cornell West. And they had given us she'd given a sermon focused on David, David and Goliath, blah, blah, blah. So it gets broken and it's it's standing room only in there. They're surrounded by white supremacists with torches. Outside yelling. Yelling. Blood and soil. um, Jews will not replace us. Every slur in the book. Book. Okay. That is happening while these people are inside of a church. So much so. It is so threatening, in fact, that their security tells them they can't can't leave. leave. Because there is quite literally a lynch mob outside. This is important. And it's been bothering both Francis and I before we even talk to each other about it all weekend because... That detail isn't just a detail. It's an important way for us to acknowledge what actually was going on this weekend. And what was, it was a precursor. And, and, you know, this was the a, intimidation a, to keep the counter protesters from happening. Absolutely. And they did the old standby. This is why I cannot. There's so many things that, that I feel like we have a responsibility to keep saying. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the first place. That these people go, that white nationalist terrorists go, are black churches. That's right. Because they're supposed to be safe. They want to attack you at your safe place, whether it's Dylan Roof or these people. That's right. They, that was not an accident. No. They go to black churches to try to intimidate and instill fear and keep black people and, and those who would organize with us That's right. from facing them because they are cowards and they are terrorists. And here's the thing. Inside that church, it was multicultural That's and multi-denominational. Right. Uh, those people got held hostage that night and the police, by Nazis outside. That's right. And the police didn't come. They didn't come. They, they didn't, didn't make come. the Nazis split up. The, the they only didn't. way that those people got out of that building was because when the Nazis felt like letting them go. And it seems like you've been meaning to do me harm But I'll teach my eyes to see beyond these walls in front of me And someday I'll walk out of here again Yeah, I know someday I'll walk out of here again
some of you know, is Lee Camp. I'm named after and a descendant of General Robert E. Lee, who should probably fire his publicist. <laughs> I'm not kidding, though. He's actually my great, 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 great third cousin. <laughs> really, but he never even sends me a birthday card, all right? So he's, he's you know what? He's dead to me. He's dead to me. <laughs> Anyway, besides being named Lee, descended from Lee, growing up in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, and attending the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, last weekend, I was also 10 feet from the Charlottesville terror attack as it happened. So that is who I am and where I come from and what happened this week. And I'm saying it's time to take down the statues of Robert E. Lee. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, we don't even have to take them down, all right? Just move them all to a big building where anyone who wants to go see them can. It'll be called the Museum of Values Most of Us Have Evolved Beyond. It'll have Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and J. Edgar Hoover and, and that Joe Paterno statue they took down at Penn State after it came out. He was defending a pedophile, you know? And it'll have Bill O'Reilly. Not, not a statue, just Bill O'Reilly. He'd just be greeting people and grabbing asses or whatever, you know, what, whatever he does. It'll be kind of like the Creationist Museum in Kentucky, you know, that, that has a display of Jesus standing next to a dinosaur with a saddle on its back. I mean, that museum stays in business purely because millennials show up to post Instagrams with the caption, Remember when humans believe this shit? They're like, we kind of find this annoying, but it's paying the bills, so. Some people, some people support the Confederate statues and flags for openly racist reasons. That is clear. You can spot them by the uh, pronounced brow, the uh, tiki torch, and just a little drool trickling down, trickling down their chin. But for many others, it's much more complicated than that. My parents, who are enlightened, wonderful people, hi, Mom! Love the name. Love the name. They named me... They named me Lee for the same reason a lot of people semi-ambivalently support the statues. Because they want to recognize our history, our ancestors, outside of the racial implications. But the problem is, these things can't be taken out of their time and place. And you don't have to be overtly racist to unknowingly take part in and bolster a racist system. Removing the racism from Confederate monuments is impossible. It's like trying to remove the, the flour from a loaf of bread, or the corporate money from Congress, or, or the war profiteer's sack of shit from Bill Crystal. It's, uh, it's uh, baked in there, baked in there. Statues are not just meant to honor our history. They're also meant to symbolize our values, to remind our society how a great person behaves. And judging by the statues, apparently there were 99% more great men than great women, and about 99% more great white men than great black men, and essentially zero great Hispanic people, and maybe one great Native American. I mean, if you really look at the numbers, there were apparently 
far more great horses than great women. <laughs> and I'd like to say, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. And plan my flag in that one. Yeah, it's real, real tough to get applause in this room right there. <laughs> but beyond just that, Confederate statues are worse than most. They represent a pride in fighting for the right to own other human beings. That's what it was. I didn't understand that when I was little, of course. In fact, here I am sitting on the Robert E. Lee Monument in Richmond. That's, that's a real photo. Excuse the socks. I now, I may, I may look happy in that, but actually I'd been stuck up there for weeks, so it, it wasn't that good. But I didn't, I honestly didn't know the true history, the true history, because we were taught a whitewashed version in school, even to the point that my high school mascot was the Confederate rebels. There was that, that's the real dude with that ridiculous rebel soldier. Because nothing says winners like a 98-year-old racist who was on the losing side of a war. I think I was 10 before I even realized the South had lost the war. When I heard that, I was like, what the f*** are you talking about, lost? If we lost, then why do you see all this Confederate shit around town? Isn't that like wearing the t-shirt that says, President Dukakis? <laughs> I was a big Dukakis fan when I was about 10. But, but here's the most important part, all right? To, to, to this day, I don't think I can fully understand what it must feel like to be a black person in our society and pass by glorified monuments to people who fought to continue owning your ancestors as property. It probably feels similar to seeing a grand statue to a, to a, a Nazi in Germany, if there were such a thing. I realize that there are a variety of differences between the two, but the point it sends is the same. The monument says, these men who viewed your kind as second-class citizens or property or mongrels to be exterminated, they were our heroes and we're proud of them. Carol, do we have to reach as far back as Germany in the 1930s to find American examples of what like, we saw in Charlottesville? I mean, Oh, no, not at all. I thought of the, the images coming out of Charlottesville this weekend, and it reminded me of Little Rock in 1957 when nine black honor students uh, went to integrate Central High uh, three years after the Brown decision. And... Um, the mob came out in force to stop nine black children from getting an education. The other thing that struck me and gave me a sense of Birmingham during the Freedom Rides, which is when African Americans and whites were riding interstate buses, when they got to Birmingham and they stepped off of the bus, they looked around and then 
whites attacked, just started beating, or when I think about Birmingham blowing up, th- there are these these light motifs that keep echoing through in America. And so we call them Nazis. And the reason why it's easy to say Nazis is because we don't feel complicit in that evil. That makes it much so much harder than when we talk about these folks who love the Confederacy. And so we've we've gone to calling them Nazis or to strip the reality of who they are out of that language by calling them alt-right when what we really mean are white supremacists. Can you talk about what you think white nationalists expect to accomplish in 2017? All the demographic trends show that the U.S. isn't going to revert back into a majority white country. So like, what's the goal here? To me, what they want to accomplish, I mean, and you heard it from David Duke when he said that here in Charlottesville, you know, we're filling Trump's promise. Um, when he talked about make America great again, what they really meant was make America white again. And then I'm putting an asterisk by that because what that really means is to create a society where the resources of the society funnel in to a, a whites-only space, but that it is propped up and supported by a vast labor pool without rights. This is why you're seeing those policies coming out of Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice and coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. All of this is to basically criminalize the black and brown populations in the United States to a point where they can provide the labor that can create and sustain a very comfortable lifestyle. For whites. So these policies are being enacted by the White House. Um, they're being pushed by the Justice Department. But what role do white nationalists play in feeding and aiding those goals? Oh, they are absolutely essential to it. When Trump began his campaign saying that Mexicans are rapists and criminals, he was sending the signal to those white nationalists that it was now their day, that they could begin to act and to say the things that they felt had been forbidden so, for so long because of the change in the norms brought about by the civil rights movement. They also serve the purpose of distancing people from the everyday, more policy-based instances of, of racism and racial discrimination. So, you know, in the wake of Charlottesville, you've seen Republican office holders accepting the president, condemn the white supremacists in Charlottesville, condemn the violence, explicitly label the white supremacists as white supremacists. But these lawmakers who did this, whether it's Orrin Hatch or of Utah or Marco Rubio of Florida or Cory Gardner of Colorado. None of them have spoken up against voter suppression regimes in Republican states. And what the white nationalists sort of do is they provide a way for more mainstream figures to say, well, we're not them, therefore we reject racism, and then kind of quietly accept a policy regime that uh, entrenches racial inequality, that effectively denies the rights of citizenship to, to millions of Americans. It doesn't just obscure that that latter part, but it also enables them to kind of act affronted when you say, well, hey, this stuff you're doing or supporting is directly harming non-white Americans. Right. This is not racism 
that over there, that sort of frothing at the mouth, right. that's, that's the real racism. Right. Which is Jamel's nickname on Twitter, <laughs> by the way. The real racist. Right. You know, and that's part of what also is getting, I would say, missed in this focus on Trump. He stepped into something where the ground has already been tilled for him for decades. And that was the Southern strategy. That was Nixon talking about law and order and defining criminals as black. This is Ronald Reagan launching his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in Neshoba County, which is the site where Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, um, three civil rights workers in the early 1960s, were killed by sheriffs and the Klansmen with the help of the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. This is where he Reagan launches his campaign saying, I'm a firm believer in states' rights. What Trump stepped into, Republicans had been tilling that ground for a long time. And even think about how you had Mitt Romney in 2012 seeking Donald Trump's birther support for the presidential nomination. You know, the Republicans are going to have to own this and they're going to have to begin to think through what they have done by inviting this toxin of racism into their party. I often criticize CNN, um, but I do a segment by segment when I think it's merited. And we point out the facts for you guys and what they get wrong, and from time to time what they get right. Well, today I want to give them credit uh, because I think they did a very interesting interview and then an interesting segment afterwards uh, to give you a sense of where Donald Trump is getting their talking points. It's a very good job by the reporter here. He went and interviewed Jared Taylor. Jared Table, Taylor, Taylor is a what he calls himself a white advocate. And uh, and he explained in the interview that he is an advocate for white people and you know and that uh, whites need to be defended and you you know the whole trail, right? And he's got a whole group that he started and founded based on that. Uh, and he interviewed him a couple of hours before Donald Trump did his insane press conference at Trump Tower on the same day. But the interview did not go live. So Donald Trump did not know about it. But now they then put the interviews together to give you a sense of where Trump might have gotten his talking points. But he didn't see Jared Taylor. They they believe the same things. They get their talking points from the same places. So look at how similar they are right now. I interviewed Jared Taylor Tuesday afternoon. Two hours before President Trump's news conference in New York. The answer's so similar, it's almost as if the president was listening in. 2 p.m. And there would have been no violence whatsoever if there had not been counter protesters showing up with baseball bats and helmets and masks. Mr. Trump, two hours later. Let me ask you this what about the fact that they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any 
problem? I think they do. 2 p.m. If those folks hadn't showed up, there would have been no violence. I believe they are much more hate motivated than the people who wanted to gather and talk about preserving the Lee statue and preserving a white majority. Many different 4 p.m. But not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. Then this. When are we going to rename the capital city? Washington, D.C. He was a slave owner. When are we going to write out of history the first seven of nine presidents who owned slaves? Are they all going to come down? George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down? Excuse me. Are we going to take down? Are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas? If it talks like a white supremacist, it's likely a white supremacist. Same ideas, same ideology, same talking points. At least we now know where Donald Trump stands. The world's still divided, and you're still undecided. Decide if you can. Hey, what's your plan? Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Hey, what's your plan? Where do you stand? We want to end the show with a letter. It was written by Alan Zimmerman, president of Congregation Beth Israel here in Charlottesville. His synagogue is a block away from Emancipation Park, where the statue of Robert E. Lee stands and where white supremacists rallied last Saturday. On Saturday morning, I stood outside our synagogue, one block away from Emancipation Park. With the armed security guard we hired after the police department refused to provide us with an officer during morning services. Even the police department's limited promise of an observer near our building was not kept. And note, we did not ask for protection for our property, only for our people as they worshipped. Forty congregants were inside. Here's what I witnessed during that time. For half an hour, three men dressed in fatigues and armed with semi-automatic rifles stood across the street from the temple. Had they tried to enter, I don't know what I could have done to stop them, but I couldn't take my eyes off of them either. Perhaps the presence of our armed guard deterred them. Perhaps their presence was just a coincidence, and I'm paranoid. I don't know. Several times, Parades of Nazis passed our building, shouting, There's the synagogue, followed by chants of Sieg Heil and other anti-Semitic language. Some carried flags with swastikas and other Nazi symbols. A guy in a white polo shirt walked by the synagogue a few times, arousing suspicion. Was he casing the building or trying to build up courage to commit a crime? We didn't know. Later, I noticed that the man accused in the automobile terror attack wore the same polo shirt as the man who kept walking by our synagogue. Apparently, it's the uniform of a white supremacist group. Even now, that gives me a chill. When services ended, my heart broke as I advised congregants that it would be safer to leave the temple through the back entrance rather than through the front, and to please go in groups. 
This is 2017 in the United States of America. Later that day, I arrived on the scene shortly after the car plowed into peaceful protesters. It was a horrific and bloody scene. Soon, we learned that Nazi websites had posted a call to burn our synagogue. I sat with one of our rabbis and wondered whether we should go back to the temple to protect the building. What could I do if I were there? Fortunately, it was just talk. But we had already deemed such an attack within the realm of possibilities, taking the precautionary step of removing our Torahs, including a Holocaust scroll, our most prized possession from the premises. Again, this is America in 2017. They died in the fields and factories, they were scattered in the wind. They died together a hundred years ago, they're dying now. The hands that built the country walls trying to keep down. There's diamonds in the sidewalk, there's colors like the song. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, it's time to take down Confederate monuments. Our nightmares are coming true. Beyond the threat of nuclear war, unmasked white supremacists and Nazis waving their flags in broad daylight and murdering counter-protesters is pretty close to the worst-case scenario America we all feared under Trump. The only thing we can be grateful for is that this vile public display of hate, racism, and violence is backfiring, despite having an active defender in the Oval Office. After Charlottesville, cities and towns across the country not only declared a zero tolerance for anyone planning to come to their cities with an agenda of hate, but many finally began taking down their Confederate statues, many months after the last Confederate statue in New Orleans came down. Just days after Charlottesville, Baltimore City Council voted unanimously to immediately remove their Confederate statues. They were gone by the next morning, taken away in the middle of the night without speeches or news cameras to draw attention. Now, Lexington, Kentucky's statues are expected to be removed. In other cities like Durham, North Carolina, citizens are taking statue removal into their own hands, though it's worth noting that these statues should ideally come down legally so that there's no lingering questions over their removal. The Confederate statue takedown bandwagon is one that you want your town, city, or state officials to jump on. No matter how late they are to the party, the momentum and pressure right now is strong and can and should be used effectively by citizens to make lasting, positive change in their communities. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, more than 1,500 Confederate monuments stand in communities like Charlottesville with the potential to be the flashpoint of more turmoil and bloodshed. The SPLC is encouraging everyone in those states to help keep the Confederate monuments tumbling by writing a letter to the editor in your local newspaper to take down the Confederate monuments in your community. SPLC has provided sample language for your letter on their It's Time to Take Down Confederate Monuments campaign page at splc.org, but the organization highly suggests you use your own words. After you've sent your letter, go to the campaign page and fill out a form letting SPLC know where you've sent your letter. If you're not sure if there's a Confederate monument near you, 
check out the interactive map on the monuments around the U.S. on the same campaign page. Some of their locations will certainly surprise you. If your state doesn't have a Confederate monument, that doesn't mean you can't get involved. Right now, Robert E. Lee stands in the U.S. Capitol Building Sanctuary Hall as the representative statue for the state of Virginia. Lee is actually one of 12 Confederate statues in the hall, a collection that does not have one single statue of an African American. Go to rootsaction.org to learn more about the campaign to change this and get involved. And finally, check out the SPLC's updated 10 Ways to Fight Hate, a community response guide to prepare, strengthen, and heal your community in the face of hatred. And remember, as the response guide says, quote, More often than not, when hate flares up, good people rise up against it, often in greater numbers and with stronger voices, unquote. So your voice is always needed. Silence in the face of hate is never an option. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if standing up to hate is important to you, and I sure hope it is, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word that it's time to take down Confederate monuments via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? As organizers as well, we need to be very critical at this moment right now around the American Civil Liberties Union, because I hold them partly responsible for that. They went to court to protect these white supremacists who were not saying we're going to have a rally and expose or excuse our hate speech, that we're also ready to fight and violently espouse that speech. That was frustrating. Yeah. No, it's, 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 I used to, I'm ashamed I even worked for that organization because I used to be a national youth director. And, you know, and the head of it is a Puerto Rican man, Anthony Homero. As a Puerto Rican, I'm doubly ashamed because this is not about free speech. This is about white supremacists who rule from the White House to a pastor out in whatever state or in the cities in Albany, New York. This is them saying that they feel egregious around their white identity. And the only way to keep their white identity is to get rid of the rest of us. So for the ACLU to pick the wrong side at this moment, knowing the potentiality of what could happen because these neo-Nazis and white supremacists are on the government payroll and sitting next to Trump right now, it's disgraceful and reprehensible, and I know liberals and even some progressives are not going to like it, but in these moments, this is not about like. This is not about being nice anymore. This is about us being able to live our lives and our children, or if we don't have children, the actual future, being able to actually live a life free of white supremacy. 
And it's just been emboldened even more when a group like the ACLU supports your right to do what? Kill somebody. Main people. It's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. It's sad. It's angry. It's frustrating. But in these moments, we also have to be critical and then say, well, there's a lot of other organizations that do hella good work and it doesn't have to be them. It's, and you say that, I just want to say full disclosure to the listeners who some may realize this. I'm actually currently the celebrity ambassador for racial justice for the ACLU. And so this was something that I had this, that I'm sort of dealing with right now too, you know, to sort of like, well, you know, I have to reach out to them and talk to them about this because it's like, this is not, it's hard to be, it's free speech at the expense of people's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is not something I support. This is why the ACLU feels like a white organization, because like the it's supposed like they could say, well, this is consistent. We support everyone's right to the First Amendment. But the difference is the First Amendment gets gets curbed if there's an immediate threat of harm. What is a more right. immediate threat of harm than people who are armed saying the things that they're saying? And and that's, you know, that it's a very white lens of like, well, we're not used to getting harmed like this. We, we don't see things like that. Well, this is what happens when you're dealing with white supremacists. And with regards to the cops, I mean, you know, there was video yesterday of white supremacists moving the boundaries that were placed by the police in front of the police and the police doing nothing about it. Nothing. Not just letting it happen. Well, they need more space. Well, yeah, that's the problem. White people, <laughs> people need more. They want more they space. Want more and space. you're giving them more space even in the fucking rally. I mean, and also, I mean, we just spoke to somebody who um, follows far right movements. And he was saying how like 450 people have been killed within the last decade or two by white supremacist organizations and then you want us to put faith in the cops how many people have the cops killed in less time so of course it's going to be hard to trust the police that they're going to do their jobs because they've killed more people than white supremacists have yeah i mean the numbers this year alone around the police violence you know and i mean i it is is surpassing any years in the past so and i think then at this moment um, we also always have to have and take a moment to have clarity to understand that this is, again, just a, a, a systemic problem that is, and I have to say this again, right, emboldened by the highest office in the United States. Steve Gorka is a neo-Nazi and Bannon is a nationalist, and our tax dollars are paying for them right now in the White House to tell Trump, which we know it would be fake if he even said it, because we obviously sometimes have to listen to the maniac speak, say, could not still say the word white supremacist. And somebody hit me up, like, I can't believe he can't say it. I said, how don't you believe it? He is one. Mm-hmm. He is. We have a white supremacist who's the president. Mm-hmm. So, And his boys, his gang of men and women are down with it. Yeah. Yeah. So what 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 are we what are we what are we expecting? And then what are the implications when this president does this to maybe how this also emboldens white nationalists around the world? Yes. And we always in the United States have to be mindful of it's happening here. It's ten times worse what's happening to African and and, and our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters that are refugees going into Europe in other places. It's emboldening more and more of just not white supremacy to permeate, but anti-blackness. 
anti-blackness and what that means. I remember right after the election that you kept hearing people say, uh, you know, no more identity politics. The problem is identity politics. And this was happening from the left. And identity politics, whenever they said it, was coded to me. It was it was a way to say minorities have to stop fighting. Queer people have to stop fighting. Women have to stop. It's coded. We're all we have to pretend we're all together. And, you know, we have to come together. It's like, no, it's coded. You're talking about us. But meanwhile, while this is happening, you don't question white supremacy. That is the ultimate in identity politics. That is the major problem of identity politics in this country is white supremacy. And it has been since the beginning. So Everybody who said, like, we have to stop identity politics, that's the problem. Fuck you. You're fucking cowards. Yeah, fuck them. (laughs) Like, fuck you 20,000 times. Like, Donald Trump ran on a white identity politics. Yes. That's it. Period. Fuck Trump, too. Please. Like, I'm like, at this point, if we think that in any shape or form, any force in this country, could reason with a megalomaniac who on top of this is ready to send this to nuclear war, then like Heather said, you're not paying attention. And Mm. folks not paying attention, we don't have time to try to bring them to our side. I don't have time to sit down and try to reason with you. I don't have time to try to talk to you about my humanity and what I deserve in life what our children deserve, and what the general population in this country deserves. And I would encourage people, stop wasting your time with that shit for real. Now, what you want to waste your time is, am I an activist? Am I an organizer? How do I get down? How do I support? How do I create media that creates not only the conversations, but the organizing and activism that is needed so that we're not getting all this stuff funneled through this lens of also people in power who are elite, who are trying to figure out basically at this moment, like how do we keep a lid on what could be a potential combustion rebellion all throughout this country? Because that's the only way we're heading. We're heading, we're there now because of what happened, but we're also in these moments, we also know that we're organizers and people, whether from the underground to the above ground, we're not going to let this go down in this way. It's, it's not like you're, never, you're not going to get rid of us. The thing is now, how do we survive in America? And that's what we're figuring out right now. And we will survive. I, I have no doubt. Do I believe we'll take more losses? Of course. But I also believe, and that's what ultimately white supremacy is afraid of, that the majority of the world's people have and will always survive. And that includes here in America. We just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, discussing the underlying purposes of white supremacy, off-kilter, laying out a brief history of Confederate monuments, the song about America being full of racist monuments came to us courtesy of the Young Turks, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour discussed the inspiration the actual Nazis took from Jim Crow-era America, 
Backstory warned that we might not want to refer to homegrown white supremacists as Nazis, as it tends to create some distance between our sense of self and the white supremacy our society has cultivated. Redacted Tonight featured Lee Camp discussing his personal connection with Robert E. Lee and the Confederate history of his home state of Virginia. Frangella, the final word, highlighted the seldom-talked-about terrorizing of a black church the night before the major protest incident. Code Switch pointed to just some of the ways that the Republican Party has emboldened white supremacists. The Young Turks highlighted a CNN segment comparing Trump to a white supremacist and their eerily similar talking points. Backstory played a letter written about the experience of being in a nearby synagogue during the white supremacist rally. Our activism for today is in support of the movement to remove Confederate monuments throughout the country. And finally, we just heard Politically Reactive take the ACLU to task, not for defending free speech, but for defending harmful speech and credible threats of violence, as well as reminding everyone what the real destructive identity politics in America is. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and share sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Kyle in Portland. I'm listening to your rerun, the race episode. And they're talking about how they made white people a team so that we could have someone to look down on, the slaves, the brown people, so that we would leave the elites alone. I'm wondering if there's an audience member or if you have a take on this, if that's something we just ascribe to it, looking back through history that that's how it went, or if there's actual literature on the elites planning to do this, to make this happen. Hey, let's pit the poor against the brown. I guess I'm just too lazy or don't know exactly how to ask that question into Google. So if you find the time... That'd be awesome. Okay, thanks, buddy. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in. Calling in, actually, about the Mighty Network's Best of the Left setup got going there. Um, I'm really excited for this. I think you got over 75 members now, or 75 people signed up on the board there, and I'm seeing a lot of action. I think it's great. Not only am I seeing action with regards to clips and people volunteering for clips and being supportive, but I'm also engaging in some personal chats and conversations, and it's a great way for at least me to feel part of a net, this network of people in a different way. So I just want to give a shout out. I think it's a great idea. I think it's fantastic, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, as you may have heard in that last uh, main segment in the show, there was a little bit of talk in reference to free speech and harmful speech and credible uh, threats of violence and all, all of that sort of thing. And uh, you, you may recall, if, if you've been listening for just a few months or so, uh, this is not the first time that free speech has come up as an issue. It's, it's really come up only one other time, primarily, at least that I can recall. And again, it was in reference to this sort of anti-fascist movement 
to stop these, you know, self-proclaimed either white supremacists or Nazis or fascists or, you know, whatever you want to call them. And the, the argument basically goes that we've already witnessed what happens when fascists come to power. Uh, what is very likely to happen, the, the, uh, the logical conclusion of their ideology that they need to have a place to live where they can live with people who are only like them basically requires that everyone else be expunged from the society. And what they say is, hey, we just want you to voluntarily leave. But since that's not going to happen, you pretty much end up doing something terrible. So the anti-fascist movement says, look, we've tried the other methods. Like we've tried being nice. We've tried trying to coexist peacefully and accept your point of view and hope that you'll accept our point of view. But that's really diametrically opposed to their philosophy. It's not what they're all about. And so if there is a threat that they will come to power, you really just have to do everything uh, in your power to stop it. And for them, the Antifa movement, that at least for some, comes along with the requirement to be very flexible on American ideals of free speech and the need to tamp down on free speech rights of Nazis and fascists. So in the previous episode, I played sort of both of these liberal views, the Antifa view of, look, for the sake of liberal values, we need to do everything we can to stop fascists from coming into power, and also the sort of more classical liberal view that free speech is great and you don't want to start restricting it because that's a slippery slope that no one wants to go down. And so, I, you know, I just played both of those clips and thought it would start an interesting conversation, and it did, of course. You got a call someone saying that the Antifa person basically sounded like a uh, sociopath, I think, and that any any ideas that lead you down the path of restricting free speech is terrible. And, and that caller, I think, referred to themselves as a free speech fundamentalist. And so now here we are again. Uh, this topic has come up. And, you know, a few months ago, I hadn't put that much thought into it. And I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I was like, oh, man, I, should, I need to respond to this caller and have sorted out the issue of free speech within the next 15 minutes before I record. And I thought, oh, man, I, I'm just not up to that task. I need more time. And so I think I ended up doing a commentary basically where I was like, hey, look, I've grown up in America where everyone thinks that free speech is like the only thing better than sliced bread. So I have all that same indoctrination, but I'm shocked that I'm beginning to question all of these things that I've taken for granted, all my thoughts about freedom of speech. And, and that was my commentary. I was just like, hey, I don't know. I'm, I'm having some thoughts. And so some time has passed and I've heard some more things and I've, I've certainly had uh, more thoughts of my own. And so I, I want to continue this conversation. If you have comments uh, please send them in now or soon. Leave a voicemail, 202-999-3991 if you want to chime in on this. You can also email if you would prefer that. If you if you don't want a voicemail, though, I think the next best thing is actually to join the Best of Left Network, the social network that I've set up and have been uh, telling you about a little bit recently, because I've just posted a question there about this, asking, 
what's your take on free speech? Basically, on a on a hot, cold scale, where do you think free speech should be? Are you all the way hot, free speech fundamentalist? Are you all the way cold? You're totally happy with a totalitarian regime restricting everything you're allowed to say? Where in the middle do you fall? And then comment below that. Uh, and so we can start a conversation there. Because I, you know, I would like as much input as I can before we continue. And, and so I can uh, let all of you know what all of you have said and have a nice mix of conversation there. So again, leave your voicemails if you can do that, 202-999-3991, or join the Best of the Left social network. As always, a link to that. It is a private network, but you as a listener can gain access immediately without waiting to be approved or anything like that. Just click the link in the show notes, either right on the device you're using or on the website, and I look forward to hearing from you one way or the other. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find us. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Past our own sad stories and wonder why.